Amen, church. It's our prayer that those baptism waters will be full every week. And we know that there's so many of you out there that maybe that's your next step of faith and obedience to be baptized. And so if you're interested in that, we'd love to talk to you about what that means and what that would look like. And as we continue in our service this morning, as Robert gets ready to preach God's word, I want to read our passage over you today. This is from Matthew chapter 5. Beginning in verse 43, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you so much for your word. Jesus, for your teaching. Jesus, for the life that you offer us. And so it is our prayer today that as we come and we sung songs and seen evidence of your power, God, that we would draw near and we would listen to you, Jesus. We would listen to what you would have to say to us today and that we would respond in obedience with our whole lives, not holding anything back. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated this morning. Well, a preacher asked his congregation once, he said, are you willing to forgive your enemies? And he got serious about it. He said, if you are willing to forgive all of your enemies, would you stand up today? Would you stand up right where you are? Everyone stood up, except he noticed one man didn't uh, toward the back. Everybody noticed this one man didn't stand up. And he said, he called him out. The preacher called him out. He said, Mr. Jones, are you not willing to forgive all your enemies? Mr. Jones said, I don't have any enemies. He said, Mr. Jones, you lived a long life. Are you willing to forgive your enemies? Mr. Jones from the back of the church shouted out to the preacher. Everybody listening. He said, uh, preacher, I don't have any enemies. I'm 95 years old. I have outlived all of those scumbags. <laughs> hey, this morning, are you willing to forgive your enemies? Can we be serious for a moment and say, like, it's different in the room, isn't it? It's different because some of us, man, there's an easily identifiable enemy. And but for others, you got to kind of poke around, think a little bit. You live a good life, you know. You're not in like a leadership position. If you're in leadership, you got enemies. If you make decisions, you got enemies. If you take a stand, you got enemies. You know, if you hire and fire, you got enemies. If you live a little bit long, you got enemies. But a lot of us could be in the room going, "Ah, okay, I have to think, I have to jog the memory, think it through. Would that person be an enemy? We don't really speak, or we got a little little ill will between us and a little distance. But but all of us have enemies, or as I said, live and you will. And uh, while this will be an individual message for you, I hope you receive it today. I want to preach in the context of community because what Jesus talked about, he, he, he's not just like, hey, you go and make peace and hey, you go and love and you go and not lust and you go, all these things, he's, you go and handle money well. He's actually asking us to do that, yes, but to do it together, to be a peacemaking community, to be a genuinely loving community, to think well about anger together, to diffuse the anger in the world, not to add to it. Some of you are adding to the anger, stop it, but to add to the love in the world, but to do it, uh, yes, individually, but more powerfully than that, uh, to do that uh, together in community. You got any enemies, and are you willing to forgive them today? Show you a picture. A lot of you will identify this man readily. Some of you won't, which is kind of crazy. 
But I was a little kid when this guy was president, a little bitty kid when he was impeached. I saw my mama cry. She did not like it. And sorry if you're watching today, mom. I just told on you. This is President Richard Nixon. And for real, y'all, he had an official enemy list, like written down alphabetically of political opponents and people that he didn't like. He had an enemy list. This is one of them, an actor. You recognize him? Uh, This is Blue Eyes. This is Paul Newman, who was on Richard Nixon's enemy list. People that he didn't like. Paul Newman later, during the Watergate scandal, was asked about this, and he said it's one of the greatest accomplishments of his life to be on Richard Nixon's enemy list. By the way, take him down. I don't look good in comparison. Um, White House counsel John Dean said famously during the height of the Watergate scandal in the midst of the appearing and testifying before a congressional panel, he said, we use all pieces of the federal machinery to screw over our political enemies. Hating people, being adversarial has a cost. You can step into the world today and the feeling is almost palpable People not getting along, people holding grudges, people harboring and festering stuff inside of them. So today I want to ask you, as we've done in these weeks and closing it out today, I want to ask you, as the title of our sermon series is, to reconsider. Remember the refrain from Jesus in this Sermon on the Hill, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I have said, but every time he says you have heard it said, he's pointing to the religious traditions of their day, which are good. They were in Galatians 3, later we would learn, would be like a schoolmaster, like rules and laws and all that. It's only a schoolmaster. Parents, when you tell your little children to do things, those are rules. You ultimately want them to do the right thing for the right reason. You want to release them one day, and some of us have a hard time doing that. You want to release them one day, because that's what God called you to do, and that's what's going to happen anyway. But release them, and then they go, and they've got the want to. They've got the desire. You had rules for them, but what you ultimately wanted is their heart to be oriented so that they would want the good things and stay away from the evil things. And similarly, there was the law. And in the law, it was said this, but Jesus would say, you know, you can, you can look for loopholes in that law. Or, you know, the law is about the modification of your behavior. But I want to talk to you about your heart. You want to talk about, well, hey, I hadn't murdered anybody, hadn't hired a hitman. But what about, what about the anger? What about the simmering contempt? I want, I want to deal with that. Um, hadn't committed adultery. I've been faithful, but have you? What about the thoughts and intentions? What about the images and associations? What about the world that's teeming with temptation? How are you handling that? How are you orienting the desires of your heart? Have you surrendered those? Because all of us are broken in that area. All of us need to surrender that. And it can be done. He can do that. So Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I want to say to you, and it all happened here. Here's a a picture of this hill. Here is modern day uh, area where Jesus is believed to have delivered this sermon. Now, I've delivered uh, hundreds and hundreds of sermons through the years, and just thinking about it, we got a few preachers in the room, but just thinking about the number of sermons you've delivered, and they're all so, uh, uh, all my sermons are so forgettable, and uh, don't say amen as they did in the 930, but you know, can you remember any of the sermons, and you know, what impact do they have, and of course that has me searching for that at times in, in insecurity and such, but just think about, I mean, it's never about me or any other preacher. I hope you know that, but man, it, it is about Jesus and Jesus delivered a sermon. How cool is that to think uh, of all the sermons I preach? Nobody remembers them, but he delivered one some 2000 years ago and folks are talking about it. 
And people of non-faith have actually been so compelled by Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They've come to faith or they're beginning to suspend their disbelief or they're beginning to look at their lives and look at our world in light of what Jesus taught. Uh, Psychologists at Harvard, I was reading a testimony in the book Finding God at Harvard. and It was the Sermon on the Mount that put him to uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Here is this area where Jesus' scripture tells us that his popularity was soaring, always a good thing. His poll numbers were high. He was getting retweeted a lot. People were loving on Jesus. Uh, any guesses why they were loving on him in the early part of his ministry? Miracles. A lot of miracles. Jesus was performing miracles. We want to be a part of that. So the crowds were following in him. And unlike the church in America, unlike religious leaders of our day, unlike the metrics that we use to judge our religious leaders, Jesus didn't seem to... Um, put the crowd first. While uh, Matthew 9 tells us he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them, deep, the Greek language, deep in his bowels, he was moved with compassion for they were like sheep without a shepherd. So yes, there's the love of the crowd, but he pulled together his disciples. And so even during a pandemic, when crowds aren't gathering, even when the numbers are low, uh, maybe it doesn't matter because maybe the focus is on the disciples. Maybe it's the people who really want to learn. Maybe it's the people who say, I don't want to be a fan of Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to be a student. I want to to be an apprentice. I want to put myself under him. I want to hear what he says and apply it to my life and experience that his promises are true. And to that, Jesus sits down and he talks to them and he delivers. And here's the thing. He's forming a new community. He's forming a new community. And the old, he fulfilled the Old Testament. So when Jesus came, he, it was Old Testament fulfilled. And all these laws, I mean all these laws, civil and ceremonial, judicial laws, all these things from the past were fulfilled in a single verb. The word, the reality, love. Love is what matters. How, pause for a moment, how beautiful could the simplicity of that reality be for you if all that matters is love and that love was chief, love was the goal of the instruction, love was what, when you put your feet on the floor, it's what you went to, all of your actions, everything you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the kingdom of God, if love was primary in your life, what if you didn't miss it in chasing after all the other things. So Jesus addresses, he confronts things that get in the way of love. The goal is loving relationships. The goal is for us. And when Jesus talked about love, it's love applied. Love to God, love to neighbor, and drum roll, hate it if you want to, love for enemy. Love to God, amen, preach it, preacher. Love to enemy, not the one on my left, but I'll love the, uh, the neighbor on my right. Love to enemy, no way. Not if they hate me, not if they talk bad about me, not if they filed papers and divorced me, not if they neglected me, not if they ran down my good name, not if they walked out on me, not if they lied in this business venture. Mm -mm. I'll do, I'll I'll try to do the other things, the other Jesus things, but I'm not going to do that one. Now look, that's a consensus. Let's not pretend everybody, everybody, we've got some young people in the house today. Everybody's going to understand the message today. But can we believe that it's the better way to live? That's what I want to get out. So the thing, so Jesus talks about lust and adultery, money and worry, secrets and rewards. He talks about salt and light. He, he talks about things that get in the way, the narrow way and the wide way. And he wants to eliminate, he wants to address and confront and eliminate the things that get in the way of love. 
So he gives us a couple action points. That's the cue to note takers in the house and at home. So I'm going to give you two actions and then two reasons. If you're like me, you need reasons for your actions. If you come up and give me a command, I'm probably going to want to know why. Why are you telling me to do this? That's just part of my, that's been in, it's in my DNA. I'm just one of those rule breaker problem people. But two actions, here we are. The first action is the following, to be kind. When Jesus talks about love, he wants to drive out hate. He wants to fulfill religious promises. He wants a new command and a new community to be formed. By the way, you know what? Today, uh, I want that. Anybody want to join like a new community where there's a, a new ethic and that ethic is, is lived out in a verb called love because it's what the world is screaming for. I mean, there is so much darkness. And while all the darkness can make you depressed, you can also realize, hey, we've got an opportunity that's pretty doggone cool. And, and, and I would say, I want you today to reconsider. I'm already 10 minutes into the sermon with not all that much left, but I want you to reconsider today. So two actions, be kind. What did Jesus say? Lauren read it aloud in verse 44, do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. So let's break that down. Back in the day, remember when Jesus would do the, the refrain, the six time repeated, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he was pointing back to the big 10, to the 10 commandments or, 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 or laws very closely, uh, in close proximity to the Ten Commandments. So let's hearken back in history to this time, and then we can maybe relate it to our day. Um, let's look first at the law of the uh, runaway donkey. There's a donkey that looks like he's run away. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 4. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. So let's play that out. Yeah, what do, you, what do you want? What are you doing on my doorstep? Well, I saw your ox, a few, your donkey, a few fields over. And uh, I just put him back in your pen. I mean, he, was, he was way down there, so I put him, I put him in your pen. Whew. That has a way of just diffusing the anger, doesn't it? That has a way of de-escalating the situation. And I came upon a, a crowd that was about to turn to a mob a couple of weeks ago, and nobody was diffusing the situation. Like, we needed a divine diffuser. I just got out of there, but it, it was ugly. And it was like, we need in this, in this time when everybody's on edge, we need a diffuser. And that's what kindness can do. So play it out if you want to. I mean, that's what that's. I mean, the first murder happened early in the Bible. You hear me up, up here saying it a lot. The Bible does a lot of things. You can accuse the Bible of a lot of things, but you can't accuse the Bible or the characters in the Bible of being airbrushed. And murder happened and violence would escalate. And you've heard me teach this before, but eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, Old Testament law that Jesus spoke to and then advanced. That was actually, as depressing as it is for us today, it was actually progress. It was social and political and cultural progress. It moved the ball forward in terms of how people were treating each other because eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is like, if you're going to get somebody back, go even. Don't go, don't escalate it. And that's what we do. Think about times when you've been angry and someone has done blank to you and then you, you haven't just done blank back to them. You've taken it up a notch. You wanted the pain that was inflicted upon you to be greater. So you inflicted that upon them. So it's the law of the donkey that has wandered off and you return it so you be kind. 
let's consider the, the second donkey, the law, the loaded down donkey. The law, the loaded down, don't you feel, you ever like hike the Grand Canyon, there's these donkeys and you're like, man, I'm, you got your backpack on, but you think of these donkeys with all their backpack and the people and, and uh, I'm not a member of PETA, but I just think we need to be more careful with the donkeys. But uh, here's the law of the loaded down donkey. If you see the donkey of someone, this is the verse five, the next verse. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. The load is too great and they can't bear it. But notice, it's someone who hates you. I mean, I'll do nice things for nice people. In fact, you know when I'm really motivated to do nice things is if you come to my church. Or you might come to my church. Or you know someone who comes to my church. Or you can give me tickets to something. Or you can do things for me. Or you're like a doctor and I may need you one day or something. Like I like to do things. uh, You know, I'll help you with your load if you can help me with mine one day. And make my life better. But this is the absolute abject opposite of that. This is someone who hates you. And yet you're going to be kind to them. Anybody want to do that? Anybody have that in you naturally? You don't, so don't lie. Um, So action number one is to be kind. Do good to those who hate you. Action number two is pray for. So be kind to, now pray for. So do you pray? We, not long ago, we looked at a series called Repeat After Me. It was the Lord's Prayer. We walked line by line, verse by verse through that uh, most famous of all prayers. Uh, Do you pray? When I pray, I pray for me. I pray when I get up. I pray when I go to bed at night. I pray that I can sleep. My wife goes to bed. If it's not for me bothering her, she goes right to sleep. Uh, It takes me a while. It's a crapshoot if I'm going to be able to go to sleep. Uh, There's just things on my mind. And so I find myself praying that the Lord would give me peace. And I remember my mama used to come in my bedroom and pray over me. Because when I would try to sleep, my feet would do like that. And I was just thinking about all the fun things that I was going to do tomorrow. And some of the worries and tests and stuff like that. And I would just, and I still do this, ask her. In order to get to sleep, my feet have to do that for sometimes an hour. Um, But I pray for me when I pray. Lord, give me peace. And some of you are part of my problem, so I'll pray for you. That's when I start praying for you so that you wouldn't be a problem to me and uh, that sort of thing. But, uh, but I pray for, then, then I, but I, it's, I shouldn't confess this, but I'm already kind of too deep into it. But uh, it's just easy for me to pray for me. And there's so many people, and you ever heard that sermon illustration like with the Legos, like there can only be so many connections. You can only have so many friends so who are the people? So when people say, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. And this is the greatest Christian lie of all time. Oh yeah, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. And then if you don't know it, you've got 50 people that month that you're praying, praying for. But here's this command and here's the power of praying. When you pray for someone, you're aligning yourself with them and it's an act of love. It's a selfless act where you, for at least a moment, you're not worried about you and you're, you're concerned for them. But do that I mean, to not pray for yourself is a big step for a lot of us. To pray for others is a big step. But to pray for somebody who persecutes you. For just a moment, let's stop because this is important. um, Not so much in the story, but as a pastor in the world that we live in today. But like, I think a lot of Americans think they're being persecuted. A lot of Christians. And you're not really being persecuted. Like, you just don't have preferential treatment. We no longer have our preferred status. 
to quote from one of my favorite authors, we're not living in Jerusalem with the temple model anymore. We're in Babylon. We're in digital Babylon. It's a very dangerous place and we are not the majority and the culture war has been lost and we got to find new ways to live. And by the way, that new way is love. But be careful saying that you're being persecuted. Because you know, the national media attention was on Afghanistan just a couple of months ago. You noticed it pulled off because there's other stories. But you know, Christians are being killed right now in Afghanistan. You know, the church is not, they're not in the midst of stained glass. They're not, they, they, they didn't, I mean, you understand what's happening in Afghanistan. Like there's real persecution. And we'll get there in just a minute as we flip in our Bibles, but they knew who their enemy was. So pray for the people who don't have your best interest at heart. Pray for those who persecute you. So what are the two actions? Be kind. Do good to those who hate you. Really, Jesus? Uh, Secondly, pray for. Pray for those who persecuted you. Come on. So the reasons for the actions, because I don't like the actions necessarily. I want to be kind to the people who are kind to me. I want to pray for me and sometimes pray for you if it'll benefit me. And he's saying, pray for your enemies. And what happens, by the way? Let let, let me go to this. I was going to give you an assignment where I was going to ask you later today to take time to pray a prayer for an enemy. And then I decided, let's do it right now. Like right now, in this moment, who's let you down? Who's run you down? Who's walked out on you? Who's talked bad about you? Who's not intending good in your life right now? Who's your enemy? Is there a name? So I want to challenge you right there, inwardly, to pray this prayer. You got that name? God, our Heavenly Father, please bless blank. Bless them today in some unexpected way. Now, some of you just looking at me. I know, I know you're not, you didn't do the exercise, but I bet a few of you did. I wonder if a person or two might not even have a feeling, might not even have a sense of release of like, wow, could this actually, could I actually do this? Like, to actually take what Jesus said and make it a part of me. Bless this person. Here's what their, their testimonies, it's not the majority, but their testimonies of people who have prayed for those who persecuted them. And God has used that. And here's the thing. It's never about the relationship. It's not like, pray this prayer that God will bless the person who's persecuted me. And oh, it's just the relationship is restored and everything's good. It's probably not even about the relationship. Do you get it? It's about you as you pray and what's released in you. So, the, so we, we, we're kind, do good to those who hate you. And we pray for, we bless, we pray for those who persecute us. The reasons are this. First one I want to give you is family resemblance. Let's just call it family resemblance. I had a busy day Friday, started with an early morning men's group, and I had a, a ball game that night and a wedding rehearsal that, uh, late that afternoon and went and spoke to a, a local football team just a few minutes. And it's funny walking in a room with all these guys who don't have uh, high school young men who don't have their pads and helmets on. And I was standing on the corner while they were starting to eat just looking at these guys. And, and I know a lot of them, but you can just look, and maybe it happens as you get older, but you can just look at these young men and you can tell who their daddies are. 
You can tell who their mamas are, especially, again, without their uniforms. And it's funny. You can, you know, you can judge by hair. You can see their gait. You can see the way they, they walk and talk, their, their cheeks and the, even their chins. And so I looked at one boy. I'm like, look at all them chins. I know who your daddy is. And uh, just, you know, you can look, and there's family resemblance. And it's, it's, it's fun to, to be a part of that. I, it's taken me years. I grew up, people say, man, you look like your dad. You look like your dad. I never, ever saw that. I mean, I tried. I was open. I was like, look at pictures. Looked at me. Stood next to him. I never, I didn't see it. And now, at least in the last 10 years, I look at pictures of him. I'm like, man, that is me with hair. So just put hair up here. And this is like my dad. It's, it's ridiculous. But family resemblance can be kind of a source of, of, of um, discomfort or unease, but mostly it's, it's a lot of joy for a lot of people. And Jesus is saying that the father gets joy when you and I have resemblance to the family. Like you got a biological family. Man, I got a biological family. Nobody's going to accuse me of not loving my family. Like I'm, I'm imperfect, just ask them, but I love my family. But some of us idolize our family. And Jesus wants to remind you, you are a part of something bigger and it's your spiritual family. Love that biological family, but be a part of a bigger family. And you and I need to resemble the father and we will resemble the father when we are good to other people. And Jesus would give this promise or even give this illustration, this reality that we don't like a lot of times. He says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, that the sun shines on this, this field and that field. And I don't like that, do you? Like, I want to live a good life and, and uh, do the right things, and then I want my field to look better than other people's field. And I, I want rain when I want to rain, not very often. And I want the sun to shine most of the time. And, I want, and then I want to look over at the bad person's field and go, oh, my field looks so much better. But here's the thing. That ain't the way life works. And there, there's kind of a deeper meaning. Jesus is saying that, that, that God is so good to, even to the undeserving. And so don't make it about what your field looks like. Trust God with the fruit. Trust God with the reward that he wants to give. But it rains on the just and the unjust. So don't do these things to get immediate satisfaction. Please understand, I'm not promising you today to, to be kind to someone who hates you and pray for someone who's persecuted you. And all of a sudden, you're going to immediately feel this release and everything's going to be better. The, that, their field could look just like your field. But trust God with your field. So two reasons, family resemblance. And the second reason, we have to back up to Matthew 5, 14. It's city on a hill. Y'all know this verse. It's been used politically by President Bush and Clinton and other people, uh, popular especially in the 90s in the political landscape. But Jesus uh, gave this uh, command or this statement, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. My first time traveling to Europe, I was just out of college and serving consecutive summers with Campus Crusade for Christ in a country that's not even a country anymore. It was Yugoslavia. It was called Yugoslavia. The city Belgrade is uh, still there, but an amazing place that was the very, the very beginning of ethnic cleansing of civil unrest between the uh, Serbs and the Croatians. And I remember just being there, what an amazing time it was as the winds of change were sweeping through uh, Central Europe, Western Europe, uh, even Eastern Europe. Uh, Reagan had just said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear this wall down. And so things were changing. But I remember we took a week off. It was rigorous of what we were doing over there. And it was, um, it was um, in secret. 
And we took a week off and we flew to uh, Dubrovnik. We took a vacation on our mission trip and it was a night when we were flying in. And this city is a city by the sea. I bet um, maybe some of you have been or seen this, but if you can't just picture in mind, mind's eye, I didn't uh, take the time for a photo, but just picture it. I remember my experience of flying in. It was darkness, darkness. I had woken up and a friend elbowed me and looked out the window. I looked out the window and just to see the city, it's a, a scene that um, I'll never forget. And just the beautiful city lights on this hillside. And the first thing that came to mind was Matthew 5, 14. Of thinking this is what our lives could be. Now, not my life alone and not your life alone. But we together, if we form a community, we could be a city on a hill set apart. We could resemble the Father. And we could stand out in our world. Our fields are going to look alike. But we can stand out in this world in terms of people are drawn to what is bright. People are drawn to a light when it, when it is genuine. And that's the picture that Jesus gives. So listen, Jesus was saying what? Be kind, do good to those who hate you, pray for, pray for those, even those who have persecuted you. And the reasons, family resemblance, the reasons, city on a hill, but they had a real enemy. I don't know if you pray for somebody today. I don't know if you had one people, one person or 10 people that came on that list. Uh, if you had to jog your memory a little bit to think maybe who your enemy would be. But the first century followers of Jesus knew who their enemy was. Uh, history shows us clearly that the first followers of Jesus were predominantly poor people. They were people who were marginalized. They were people who were on the outskirts. There were people who were considered um, undeserving. And there was a class, there was a hierarchy uh, they didn't have the opportunities that other people had. They didn't have the privilege that other people had. So if you are a person, and by the way, is, is that not true in our world today? Is that not, do you not see simmering contempt? Do you not see anger? Do you not see political divide? Do you not see compassionate uh, benevolence going toward people? Do you not see us arguing about what lives matter? And we're having these debates. And, but look, it's happening in our world today. So as uh, thinkers, as humans, as followers of Jesus, we need, we need to think deeper about this. And Jesus is saying, everybody is loved. Everybody is included. For God so loved the world. And Jesus, the people that began to follow him, had enemies. What would you feel like if you had been left out? What would your life be like if you were marginalized? Would you love the people that shut you out? If you were underprivileged, under-resourced, with, with a lack of opportunities, would it be easy for you to love the people who were privileged? They knew who their enemy was. For them, when Jesus gathered on the hill and talked to his disciples, he knew that they knew that this wasn't an abstraction. The enemy was Rome. Their enemy was Rome. And they, they led with a heavy hand, and they were oppressed. So Jesus, when he says, and all these metaphors that he gives were very real to them. So super quickly, Romans chapter 12 um, bless those who persecute you. This is the church at Rome. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Stop there for a second. That is so difficult to do. Let's put it in our vernacular today, in our experience today. You have a sports team. You like your sports team. You probably have a rival team. For many of us, both of our teams won yesterday. That's so rare. So let's all just be happy for each other. 
But have you ever been in a moment where your team didn't play or your team played and they won or lost or whatever, but they weren't playing your rival, but your rival played somebody else that you don't care about, but they lost and they showed somebody on TV that was crying because they got beat and you rejoiced because they were crying? You ever done that? Like, can I just say that is so sick? And I just want to call that in on you. That is a sin. That's a big sin. So I hope you'll come to the altar today. But it's so, like, isn't that sick about it? It's like, we want, like, that's my enemy, and I'm not going to benefit, but I just like to see them suffer. And if someone's holding you down, and it's happening today, y'all, we're divided, and we're like, oh, yeah, they're suffering. I'm going to magnify that. I'm going to amplify that. I, oh, yeah, they are suffering. And there's a new way to live. There's a new for- community that Jesus has formed. And live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but we will willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone uh, evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning. Now he's beginning to quote Proverbs chapter 25. You will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We don't have time today, but get you a good commentary and delve into the Jewish language there. Again, quoting from Proverbs 25, it's pretty cool uh, what Paul is teaching the church at Rome, the early Christians who knew who their enemies were. So, three things real quick. Here's the thing. In Romans 21, it says, don't be overcome by evil. So in other words, you can be conquered. It's in, it's in the Greek, it's a military term. It's translated overpowered, overrun, overcome, or conquered. Here's the thing. There is evil, and it can conquer you. So you either win or you lose. So how do we overcome evil? Three ways, real quick. First way is, from Romans 12, don't avoid the offender. Verse 18, if anyone recalls, said, as much as possible lives within you, live at peace with everybody. I was reading this week just on the internet, and there was a a quick little article that says uh, three ways to ensure your happiness always, which meant it was going to be pretty light and syrupy and sentimental and stupid. But anyway, I clicked the link. The first thing to ensure your happiness always is to compliment yourself often. A lot of gems of wisdom in this one. And then it said, if your relationships have become difficult, Seek out new relationships. Now, there are times when you need to seek out new relationships. But generally, as a rule, the answer to the difficulty in your relationships is not seeking out new relationships. Now, if you're running ahead, hold on, I'm going to get them where you went. I'm going to go in just a second because the scripture does. But I'm just saying, if you delete because of difficulty and then you replace, here's what's going to happen. You're going to end up replacing the people that you've replaced them with. And so the idea, we would stay in, we would seek the peace, that we would not delete and replace, but we would seek as much as possible to live at peace with everybody. Now, a couple of things. Matthew 5, 39, we didn't have Lauren read it. Uh, It's the verses before what she read after the baptism. Jesus here, but I say to you, I bet everybody's heard this, do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Um, So what does this mean? Does it, here's my question, does it literally mean physical violence? Do you, think, do you think he means 
Because it's a, a lot of, honestly, a lot of commentaries and people, scholars are like, yeah, I mean, the Romans, and if they hit you, just let them hit you. Is that, is that what Jesus means? Anybody think it means that? Because if you think that, I'm, I, can I come out there and slap you, and would you let me slap you again, just keep slapping you? Is that, can we do that in church real quick, just to see if that's what, if you think that's what he means? Jesus didn't mean that, and here's the thing, in, in, to the Jew, the face meant relationship. And uh, by the way, I shouldn't wade off into controversy, but you know, like the CDC guidelines and science, all that follow it, wear the mask, we've done it and we've argued over it and I've done it and you know, whatever, but like, it's not quite like a seatbelt. So if that's your argument, I think that's a little weak because your face is there's something to your face. And like the Lord caused his face to shine upon you. And the, 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 Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And there's something about the face. And, and the face uh, says that you're open and that you're with somebody, that you're for somebody, and that you're fully present and you're there. And uh, I don't know why I illustrated that way. But anyway, but your face is important. So in the, to the Jew, the face meant relationship. So when you hit the cheek of somebody... You're insulting the relationship. Um, we had a martial, I had a martial arts guy on the second row of the first service today, and um, I joked with him, uh, you know, you, in martial arts, your instructor never says, you know, slap them in the cheek, like get them, you know, just slap, hit their face. Like, it's, not, it's not physical violence. There's something else to it here. And it's when the relationship get, gets insulted. So there's a choice when the relationship gets insulted. And Jesus is saying, here's the better way. Here's the way that leads to human flourishing always. Is when your face, when you get hit on the cheek, turn to him the other. That doesn't mean be slapped around. Here's what it means. It means turn and you're basically saying that you want to re-enter the relationship. And oh, by the way, you can't keep slapping me. We can start anew. I'll give you another shot. We will have another shot in this, but it can't continue to be an insulting relationship. We've got to grow together. We've got to walk together. So three things from this passage. I don't even know if I mentioned the first one, but it's this. Number one, don't avoid the offender. And then, um, and let me say this. You can keep that up, Gina. But don't avoid the offender. We're, in, we're, we're quoting from chapter 12. Um, and I, I want to say this because it's important to say today that I would never advocate using the Bible for anybody to stay in an abusive relationship. So in Romans 12, it says, as much as possible, live at peace. I'm not telling anybody that's being exploited to stay. I'm not saying to anybody in a toxic relationship that you shouldn't seek a new relationship one day. I didn't say that. But Romans 12 talks about how the church with a real enemy called Rome could lead well. And by the way, they really got it right, even in the midst of persecution. It grew and it grew and grew and grew. And then for hundreds and hundreds of years, we've gotten it wrong because we got powerful. And we thought it was about personalities and money and politics. And it, it, Jesus showed it's about love. And when the church knew it was about love, oh my goodness, when they loved their enemies, man, they, when they resembled their father, when they had a family resemblance, when they were, man, they were a city on a hill. So look, at, you know what's after Romans 12? Romans 13. I didn't see anybody write that down. But Romans 13, you know what Romans 13 says? Romans 13 talks about the government. It talks about civil law and order. And there are times, look, the, the government, it's not perfect, just like the church and the family's not perfect, but the government is an arm of God to execute justice and to protect and serve and help people. And so I'm gonna tell you, my wife and I, we have been to a house, we have talked with people, we have entered into a painful situation, we have uh, sent them to counseling, we have gone and talked to the counselor, we've gone back to the house and we've called the police because there's a place for government. So as much as possible, live well together. Don't avoid the, avoid the offender. Number two, stay out of the judge's chair. 
my wife's middle sister, she's the oldest of three, and her middle sister lives in Chicago and married a guy. They've been married for a long time and have a couple of beautiful girls. And his family has um, attended, uh, he's from Charleston, they are, and they've attended uh, the AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, whom years ago, a man named Dylan Roof walked into this church at a prayer meeting and sat down with 12 to 15 black churchgoers and sometime into the prayer gathering pulled out a gun and shot and killed. There's a man who, when they were issuing the sentencing for Dylan Roof with national media coverage, this man whose wife had been murdered by him read a statement and as he read the statement he looked at Dylan and he said, we forgive you. My family and I forgive you. I was reading recently, the media came back to this man and said, do you have any second thoughts about that? And his words were, I'm almost quoting verbatim. He said, oh, we still forgive this racist killer and we have turned vengeance over to the Lord just as the scripture promises. He's the one to handle that, not us. And can I tell you, my brother has got it right. God is bigger than we could ever think or imagine. And we need to stay out of the judge's chair and let God be the one who's the ultimate judge. The third thing is real simple. Don't avoid the offender. Stay out of the judge's chair. Remember the gospel. It says don't be conceited, but associate with the lowly. How do you learn to love? How did you learn to love? I'm still learning. How'd you learn to love? Children learn to love not by being taught about love, but by experiencing love. Think about that. It's not a lecture. I mean, there's one, two, three, and ABCs and all that stuff, but it's not a lecture. If a child, a child can go to school and learn, and they can learn about love, and they can read stories about love where people love each other, even Bible stories about love. But they must experience love in order to love. You never grow out of that. You will only be able to love if you've experienced love. Forgiveness is not something that you do. It's someone you meet. And when you meet Jesus, the possibilities are endless. And when you meet Jesus, he frees you to, to trust what you can do, what you should do, what he can do, what you can't do, and what you over time must trust him to do. That's what he can do. And the gospel remembers that.